God's Word comes to us from the book of Jude today. Uh, The sermon text will be verses 3 and 4, but I'll start from the beginning. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, uh, to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. If you haven't yet, go ahead and turn to Jude. Small book, easy to miss, easy to find, though, right before Revelation. As you're turning there, we'll go ahead and go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you once again because we have no other. We can't turn to ourselves, as Joel was teaching us. We can't turn to our culture, God. We have nothing but you, and you have sufficiently and fully and wonderfully revealed yourself in your word, God. That is unchanging and is a bedrock of our souls. God, so let us come to your word and drink and drink till we are fully satisfied and drink till we are fully satisfied in your son and delight in your son. God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and give us hearts that are soft to learn from your word that we might be further conformed into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Have you ever tried to do something and it just doesn't work? Maybe you try for a little bit, maybe it's losing weight or you're going to start running. Okay, so you start running, right? This is a little biography. You go three times one week and then two times the next week and then one time the next week. And then the following week, it's been one week since you've run. And then the next week, it's been two weeks before you've run. And that six weeks into running, it's been three weeks since you've run. And then, but you tell yourself again, tis the lesson you shall heed. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. So you go and you go and you realize, this isn't working. It's just not working. Well, we, we have that perspective if it's just in our society, a couple minutes, a couple hours, a couple days, we get fed up, we want to pass on it. Now imagine if, You've been laboring for 10 years to have something. 10 years. And you just can't get it. All you want to do, you're the Spartans. All you want to do is go into this city, conquer it, and kill everybody with inside. It's not that big. It's not that big of a deal. But you just can't get into the city. And then the king of Ithaca, Odysseus. Now didn't this miss this slave, Philemon? Odysseus 
the king of Ithaca. Comes up with this great idea. Here's what we'll do. Send all of the men away on ships. But before they leave, we're going to take all the wood we have and build this massive horse. And 30 of the bravest men are going to go inside. But the man who's the bravest of all, Sinon, he's going to stay outside of the horse. 30 men inside, one man outside. Sinon, what he does is tracks down the city, the men from the city of Troy, gets their attention and tells them, we're admitting our defeat. You can have this offering to your queen, Athena, to this goddess. And he convinces them, Sinon convinces them to pull in this Trojan horse into the city. And then as the darkness comes upon the city, the men come out of the horse and you know the story. They labored for 10 years and from outside they couldn't conquer, but they get inside of the city walls. Wow. It was just a matter of time. It was inevitably going to fall. Jude presents these churches with this same warning throughout his letter that we must be contending for the faith, never letting our guard down and never allowing the enemy from within our walls. For the city of Troy, it was, it was tragic. When that happens in the local church, it is eternally tragic. So as we see in our text here, the main idea, the main point we're going to be getting at is that you must contend for the faith. You must be active in this. You can't be passive in it and just watch it all happen. No, you must actively be contending for the faith. So as we look at this here, the first part in verse 3 is going to be what Jude wanted to do. He's going to be talking about the common salvation. Now that's what I wanted to talk about is the common salvation. However, there's something I, I have to talk about. And that's encouraging you, earnestly encouraging you, appealing to you to contend for the faith. And then finally, we're going to be seeing how others have crept in. This is why he has to do it. So it's what he wants to do, what he has to do. And then finally, why he has to do it. Well, because these men have crept in from among you. All right, let's look at this first part here. The common, the common salvation. Verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Delivered to the saints. So Jude hears again, he's eager to write about their common salvation. And evidently here Jude is, is, is writing to this local church that's been... Uh, had some on them attacking their faith. And his first instinct is, is it goes, okay, there's a situation going on. And my first instinct is just to write to them to encourage them, to uphold them, to uplift these core uh, doctrines, these common doctrines and that undergird the, the salvation. And just imagine how great the platitudes could have been. If he's writing about this common salvation, Jude could have been the fun brother of Jesus Christ who, who writes all of this, this nice encouraging, encouraging long letter to all the churches. But no, no, he can't do that. He can't write about their common salvation. Rather, he must write 
about what is necessary. Well, think about it. So the book of Philippians, it's, it's, it's preached on all the time as opposed to Galatians. Listen to Philippians. I'm sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. Quite encouraging. That book gets preached. We preached that book. Galatians. Are you foolish Galatians? Who has bewitched you? Who having begun in the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Well, Galatians doesn't get preached nearly as much as Philippians does in local churches. And you see why. So you see why Jude's uh, first inclination is to encourage them. But as the psalmist says, it's thy rod and thy staff that comfort me. You need both in your Christian life and your Christian walk. And it's it's more fun to speak about the the, the common salvation, how how nice it is. But it's not always the best corrective measure. And you see this. It's an an epidemic, not just in churches, but look at our culture. Every child is giving this, this heaping portion of esteem, laying it on their plate... And they're unable to take any corrective measure given to them whatsoever. They just can't handle it. And it's injurious to them. And they, so they have no concept of who they truly are, or what they're good at, or what they're bad at, and how they can improve. That is in, present in the church as well. If we don't address the issues at hand. So there's a time to sow and a time to harvest. There's a time to go to the garden and pull out the weeds one by one. And then there's a time to get out the tractor and just plow the whole thing under. Endless encouragement with no corrective measures is injurious. It's injurious to your personal life. That's one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit. Right? To convict you of your sin. And to draw you to be more like Christ. That's His role. That's His job. That's how He glorifies The Father, by encouraging us and bringing to us, bringing us to live more like Christ. It's the same way, not just in our individual lives, but in the corporate body as well. We need the Holy Spirit to work among us as a body to watch out for those who have crept in, as as Jude writes later, who are ungodly, those who pervert the grace and deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So, naturally, it's Jude's first inclination to write about their common salvation. And he's eager to do that. But with great necessity, he's forced them to write about these other matters. So let's go back to the text here. Okay, Beloved, although I was very eager to you, we're back in verse 3, to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write. How does he do it? Appealing to you to contend for the faith. That was once for all delivered to the saints. This verse here is proof that Jude is Jewish. You see the parallelism going on here. It's eager. He's eager, right? He's eager to write to them about their common salvation. But it was necessary... To appeal to them to contend for the faith. He has their salvation and that's paralleled with faith. And then also um, this, this common salvation. 
Uh, actually, this, this common salvation that's given to everybody, and then this faith that is once and for all delivered to all the saints. So you see the parallelism going on here. So if you want to understand the text, you look at that, you understand, how is he changing? What is he dropping off? What is he emphasizing? What is he shedding light on? How does this further explain that? That's how you understand these scriptures and what's happening here. So, also you'll notice here, is, is Jude's posture. He's not admonishing them. He's not. It's, it's so easy for, for us to not, to not heed this because we think we're being admonished. No, what is he doing? He's, he's appealing to them. I found it necessary to write appealing to you by the grace of God that you would do the very things that the Holy Spirit is bringing you to do. Follow in that vein. I don't have to command you to do this. I'm appealing to you. To do this. That's his posture. Do no longer be observers. I'm appealing to you that you would engage in the gospel. That you would engage in your local church for the sake of the gospel. That you would engage in overseeing your brothers and sisters. As you walk together to glory. Appealing to you. To do that. What's the main thing here that Jude is, is appealing to them, imploring them to do? And it's carried on throughout the rest of the letter. So this is the main imperative that's then carried on throughout the rest of the letter. It's quite clear. To contend for the faith. This is the only time this word is used in the New Testament. And it, the root of the, of the word here, it denotes a picture of someone who's engaged in one of these Olympic games, engaged in wrestling or some athletic competition. Or you're, you're engaged in hand-to-hand competition, but you're standing over your prize and you're engaged in hand-to-hand combat, or you're standing in front of that which is treasure to you, precious to you, and you will engage the enemy. Judah is imploring all of the church, not the elders, not just the one guy who preaches. No, all of them. To engage in defending the faith. To contend for the faith. One commentator, he puts it this way. I must confess. I must confess that I sympathize with Jude. In my own ministry, I would much rather encourage the saints than declare war on the apostates. But when the enemy is in the field and the watchmen, they dare not go to sleep. Listen to this. The Christian life is a battleground, not a playground. This is the overflow of Jude. Go back in these other verses that Mike read. Jude considers himself a servant of Christ Jesus. That's undergirding all of this. He can do no other but the bidding of his master and to defend his honor. And you, how are you, if you are beloved of God and kept for Jesus Christ, as we see in verse 1, if you are beloved of God and kept for Jesus Christ, how could you not contend for the faith that gives you this identity? That you're beloved of God, but you don't care for the very thing that makes you beloved. Or you're kept for Christ Jesus, but you won't defend the very thing that keeps you kept? Of course. You would defend it. You would give anything for it. 
How could it be that we are the very ones for whom Christ has come and bled and died, yet we care so little to contend for the faith or fight for the faith that weds us to him, that his death would be our death, that his resurrection would be our resurrection? Of course, we must. It's natural that we would contend for this. So if we're not doing this, if we're not contending for the faith, We're not just neglecting that. What we're doing is we're neglecting Christ. If you don't care about Christ, you're not going to care about the faith. So if you find yourself not earnestly contending for the faith, the very thing that sustains the church throughout all of history, it's not just that. You don't care about Christ. They're one and the same. This might seem a little bit over the top to you, but let's be honest, you're always contending for something, right? Your political party? How easy is it for Christians to be adamant and dogmatic about a political party or CRT and how we're going to address that? But contending for the faith, we begin to pull back. Or status, we'll contend for that. Or we'll contend with people about the most minute things that are completely inconsequential. The Jude would have us contend for the faith, the means of our salvation, the very way that God is going to save you and bring you back to Him. That is what we are contending for. So, this very faith that demands your life and gives you life, the very faith at which you will place all of your trust, and it will never fail you. This faith should be defended by you. Now, maybe it'll make you look in ways that you care not to look, but let others think what they will of you. Don't care. I'd rather contend and and fight and wrestle for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. This faith that is so precious and so dear that it demands all that we have to keep it strong and pure. And saints of old have bled and died for this. This is not new. This is not something that can be done a hundred years ago or two hundred years ago and now we're good. No, every generation, every church, every setting needs to contend for the faith because Satan is going to attack every church. He just didn't attack the first century and then, then we're good. No, it's not just happening in Indonesia or Pakistan, or China. No, it's happening here. We must contend and defend the faith. Towards the end, we ask ourselves what it looks like. We ask ourselves, what does it look like here towards the end of the sermon? Right now we're going to say what it doesn't look like. The solution is not presented as a retreat from the world. A holy huddle where the complete, uh, where the church is completely disengaged from society and from culture. The, the church of God should never retreat. But arrayed with the glory of God and the splendor of God, the gospel continually goes forth, conquering heart by heart and soul by soul till the kingdom, because the kingdom of God is unstoppable. So this eternal plan from an eternal God to receive eternal glory will not be thwarted by some temporal rebellion in some of his creation. And admittedly, it looks perilous at times. 
If you go to Genesis chapter 4, Genesis 3 is bad. You turn the page, it continues to get worse. It looks perilous at times when Cain is rising up above his brother. And is going to strike him down and kill him. Or when Herod is sending his serpent-filled henchmen to kill all the children of Bethlehem. Or when great persecution follows Christians from their dear Jewish brothers. Or when Nero uses Christians and sets him afire just to have the light to fill up his gardens for parties. Or when others revile you and persecute you and speak all sorts of evil against you falsely on account of Christ. Contend for the faith. So through all of this, the answer has never been a retreat from the world. That's not how we contend from the faith. We don't retreat from the world, make a little holy huddle, and then just wait for the world to pass by. No, we engage the world. We have a posture of conquering and contending for the Lamb of God who was slain will receive the reward of His sufferings. Alright, so we've seen it here. A couple things Jude's like us. He wants to write about the easy things, the fun things. But you can't all the times. A good diet of his fine, but you can't always sustain yourself on that. But rather, he found it out of necessity to write to them to contend for their faith. But now, look at verse 4, and we'll see why this is necessary. And verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. What do they look like? Ungodly people who pervert our grace, the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Why are they doing it? Well, for certain people, certain people have crept in unnoticed. You think membership doesn't matter. This is a side note. We talk about membership all the time. You think membership doesn't matter. Of course. Of course it matters. See how they... they, But notice how they come in. Into our midst. They creep in unnoticed. Well, they should have been noticed. That's the implication. They come in unnoticed. They should have been noticed. Adam pointed that out to me this week. See, when you see false doctrines or false teachers come in. Come into the church. We think they're going to come in like a bear. But no, they come in like a shark. We think they're going to be a bear. They're going to come, kick the door open, say, you, 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 I'm going to drag your soul, your soul, your soul to hell with me. Let's go. No, we, we think that's how it's going to be. It's going to be really obvious. No, they're like a shark. They just kind of float around, wait for the, wait for the opportune moment, and then they'll strike. That's how they creep in. And come into the church. It's just like the serpent. It's a perfect picture, isn't it? He comes in, creeps in unnoticed. Oh, well, there he is, right at the tree. Right at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Come, 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 look at this. Come, eat of this. It wasn't a bear that, that came to force him. Satan you know, didn't come as a bear and open up their mouths and shove the food in. But no, he came in as a serpent. And awoke in their sinful desires. And once that happens... 
Your own desire to eat of the fruit is stronger than any bear can imposing it on you. Your own sinful desires to make this happen. And see where it happens. Not outside the garden. It comes within the garden. That's why it's dangerous. Throughout the Old Testament, here it happens from within. Who was it that would deliver? You want you want this prophecy with this much money? Sure, no problem. False prophets, prophets of God, false prophets. Zedekiah, the son of Chaniah, a false prophet that would tell you anything. You're the king. I'll tell you whatever you want to hear. Just give me a good life. Take care of my kids. Take care of my wife. We're good. Who was it that built King Ahab? Um, or King Ahaz, actually, goes up to Damascus and sees this pagan temple, and he wants it built just like that. Who was it that built the mirror image of that pagan temple right within the temple? Uriah, the priest. It happens from within. That's why Paul is telling them, the Ephesian elders, pay careful attention, pay careful attention to yourselves and all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. So sweet. Which he obtained with his own blood. You, you can't, it's, it's, it's worth something. Just outside of your salvation, it's worth something because it's obtained by the blood of God. I know that after my departure, who's going to come in? Fierce wolves will come in. How? They'll come in among you. Not sparing the flock. You think they're sheep, but they're going to come in. And then they're wolves when they show themselves. And from among themselves, there will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Which is why Paul also Reminds the church in Colossae. See to it that no one takes you captive. Takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition. According to the elemental spirits of the world. And not according to Christ. This is how Arius. First heretic in in church history. Do you know how he was so effective? He didn't, there's the citadel of the, of the early church. He didn't come crashing from without. No, he wasn't a, a pagan philosopher telling everybody how worthless and foolish the Christians were. No, you know what he was. He was within the church. And he deceived so many, the children, the parents, in the street and in the marketplace through his songs. It wasn't, it wasn't enough that he just throws himself in the hell. He's got to drag everybody else with him. So subtly. You're just singing the songs. That there was a time when Christ was not denying eternality and the deity of Christ. This is why you drive through any town. Especially here in the Midwest. You drive through any town. You're going to see it littered with dead churches. It's unfortunate, but it's true. These mighty oaks are not blown over with a gust of wind. Now, how do they die? 
They rot from the inside. Every single one of them. It's not persecution that presses out the church. It's internal rot. Which is why we in the West must be especially careful. Because we think the enemy is always outside, always outside. And that we're just rotting from within. Not aware of what's happening. Meanwhile, town after town after town is filled with dead churches. Must be careful to nourish the church, this church, lest we follow that same course. Beware of that. All right. So you see that they've crept within the church, but how do you how do you notice them? That's actually easier than you might think. They're they're not that good as spies. Well, first thing you notice is that they were designated for this condemnation. So when it happens, you don't have to be afraid that the sovereignty of God is somehow being thwarted because they're in they're in your midst or they're coming. No, no, God will sovereignly care for His sheep and He will carry them home to glory. Okay. So that being aside, how do you then notice them? Well, through their conduct, their doctrine, and their relationship to Christ. Through their conduct. They're ungodly people. Just flat out, they're ungodly people. Which is what you would expect when they're not filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit, crucifying their own flesh and wrestling with sin. Just look at their lives. They will make themselves known to you through their ungodliness. Okay, so their conduct, also their doctrine. They will never understand the unmerited grace of God, the transforming grace of God, but rather they will use it, they will twist it as a means for which they can do whatever they want. They might know the doctrines of grace, but they don't have the grace of the doctrines. And they twist it and they use it for their own, rather than glorifying God with his great truth, They satisfy their own flesh and their own desires. Okay, so their conduct is their ungodly. They twist the truth of God, their doctrine. And then also, this is the easiest one. They deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Their relationship to Christ. What does their devotion to Christ look like? Does their devotion to Christ give them hedonistic joy? Does yours? That's the question. All right, so you see that Jude here is so eager to write about this common salvation, but there's something that's much more important. And it's not encouragement, but rather it's the contending for the faith, which the church of God has faithfully done. This is why church history is is phenomenal. We applaud you guys for going through it. You see how God has faithfully taking care of his church and how he has used saints to defend the faith. Not only from those outside of the church, but those within the church are much more dangerous. So they have crept in and they've crept in unnoticed. So we must, we must contend for the faith. But okay, how do we do it? What does this look like in my life, in your life? If this is true and the Spirit of God works through us, what does this look like? Three things. Number one, in all humility, examine yourself. 
words, Paul writes, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So don't just look for your brother or sister in Christ who is ungodly. You have to ask yourself, am I ungodly? Don't twist, do you twist the the grace of God in order to have license to do whatever you want? Do you diminish the love of God that is so sweet and so pure that you think you can just do whatever you want? You can go and drink. You can look at any pornography and that's fine. Any relationship. Go ahead and indulge yourself. God will forgive. God's a loving God. He will forgive me of this. That's how subtle you can twist the grace of God. And we do it more than we think. It's not just them. How often do we justify our own sin? We think it's not a big deal. It's it's not. Oh, it's just a little bit of this. No, it's just a little bit long on my lunch. Well, no, you're stealing from your employer. So easy for us to justify our own sin. Number one, examine yourselves. This isn't, this isn't license to go hunting, right? This is not your hunting license, verse 3 and 4. That's not it. Examine yourself. Number two, catch it when it is small. Catch it when it's small. Cancer begins with one cell. One. And it spreads, and it spreads, and it spreads. Catch it when it's small in your own heart. Catch it when it's small in the heart of your brother or sister in Christ. You can't let it spread. You can't. In your own heart. You justify a little bit of sin. Well, you're going to be doing that sin again and again and again. And it it won't be enough to satisfy you. Only Christ is. So you're going to be indulging yourself more and more and more. And the next thing you know, you wake up. And you think you're too far gone. And the very sins that Satan said was okay for you to do. Now he twists them on you. And he says, well, you can never go back to God. Look at all that you've done. Catch the sin while it is small. All right. So examine your own lives. This isn't a hunting license. Number two, catch the sin when it is small. Catch the single fox when he's in the vineyard. Get him out. Number three, cherish Cherish your faith in the doctrines of Christ. Doctrines of the church and even Christ himself. Cherish Christ. You will naturally defend that which you love. Someone comes after your children, you're going to fight for them. You don't care if you die, you just don't. We must be cherishing Christ and this local church in the same way. The faith that has carried the saints along throughout all of centuries, all of these centuries. Cherish it. Love it. Adore it. You will feel nothing when the faith, this faith is the most precious thing you have. And when it matters to you more than life itself, then you are ready and you are ready to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have 
given us this faith. We don't deserve it, but God, you've given it to us. We ask that we would be good stewards of it, that God, we wouldn't needlessly cast it aside to indulge in things of the world, but God, that we would defend it, that we would honor it, just as we would be devoted to the beauty of your Son. So God, we ask that you would let us see this in our own hearts, God, that we would examine ourselves. We wouldn't go looking for sin in others before our heart has been thoroughly examined and washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. God, we ask that you would allow us to conquer small sins, not justify them, not indulge in them in a little way, then just have that one little pet sin. God, remove it all from us. Don't let this cancer spread within our own hearts. God, don't let it spread within this church as we see so many of our churches around us just die of internal rot. God, let us not have that happen to our own hearts and our own souls in our own church. But God, this can only happen when we cherish your Son above all things, God. So give us eyes to see the glory of your Son, especially as we come forward to this table once again, God. Let us delight in your Son. Amen.